Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Brittany Hartley, welcome to the Almost Awakened podcast. How are you doing this morning? Good. How are you, Bill? Good, good. I, I'm excited. You, you and I, we, we've known each other since I started doing this podcasting stuff. And every once in a while, you're reaching out and trying to... Uh, engage in some fascinating, um, I guess, places in the world in terms of thought and, and wrestling with things. And I've always just felt a connection to you and just appreciate this chance to sit down with you once again. And these questions you sent are really good. They they really provoke some deeper thoughts kind of within my mind as I was talking to my wife about these. And I'm excited to, to go over these with you this morning and see where it takes us in this conversation. Um, before we get started, Anything you want to say to the audience who maybe doesn't know you or doesn't know you as well, any kind of bio that you want to kind of throw out, feel free to feel free to do that. Sure. So, um, Brittany, I think this is my fifth podcast with you, Bill. Yeah. I think according to my punch card, it means that I get a free sub. I lo- <laughs> Six inch only, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get a free sub. And uh, we every time we podcast, we're both in different places, so it's always fun to catch up with where our journey is taking us. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm a doctoral student in uh, open and relational theology, and I'm enjoying really just being entrenched in the world of religion and all the really important conversations going on around what the future of religion looks like. My focus is the future of religion. And um, it's just such a fascinating world because we're experiencing such big change and we don't know where some of these changes are taking us. And so it just makes it really interesting for me. Yeah. Um, Just a quick note. I'll delete this little part, but two things. One is that when you scoot your chair, it does kind of make quite a a quality, loud noise in the mic. The second is I wonder, I know it may be a little more uncomfortable for you and maybe a little less natural, but I wonder if you turn your video off and maybe I'll turn mine off. I think the sound will, because it's still buffering every once in a while. And I think if we have no video, I think the audio is going to be a lot better. So I'm going to shut. Yep. Okay. You still there? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. So, um, so these, these questions you sent me, I'm going to let you kind of go through them and ask whatever you want. And by the way, don't stick to this. If you if something else comes up, because the same thing's going to happen for me, if something else comes up, I'm going to ask you. And so I'm just uh, going to let you kind of ask whatever you want, and we'll see where this conversation goes, and we'll both kind of feel free to ask something else if, if something else kind of comes to the surface. Sure. So uh, this these questions come after your conversation with Phil. Uh, yeah, Phil McLemore. Mm-hmm. Epi- Phil McLemore a couple episodes ago. And um, I just, I reached out to you and just said, wow, like this was such a great conversation. And there's a couple places where you guys are talking that I just kind of wanted to put a flag down and say, okay, you guys are really talking about some important. Let's explore this. And- I love it. Um, and so one of those, one of those questions is, that the religious world is talking about a lot is this contrast between nihilism and dogmatism. And it's really one of the biggest defining questions of our generation. So for example, um, 
Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson had a debate, it's like 12 hours long on YouTube. And at the root of it, they were asked, what do you fear most? And for Sam Harris, who's an atheist, he says he fears dogmatism, right? And dogmatism this where, you know, your beliefs are so out of control that you've completely lost touch to reality and you will stick a bomb on your chest and blow something up, someone up so that you'll go to heaven, right? That's the worst of dogmatism. So when you ask Jordan Peterson the same question, um, someone who I would say has a nuanced his fear is nihilism, which is the what happens when life becomes inherently meaningless and it's not replaced by anything. You could also call this maybe moral relativism, where there's just really no reason to get up because it's all meaningless and we're not accessing truth and none of it matters. It's a really existential question type place. And so there's two poles on this kind of pendulum where there's nihilism on one side and dogmatism on the other, and they're both extremely dangerous. And in the middle is where it's not as, um, the differences aren't as great. So for example, if someone believes that I don't believe in God, but I believe in the interrelated consciousness of all conscious creatures, and someone who's super nuanced calls that God, there's not huge differences between those two. They're, they're, they have places that overlap, whereas nihilism and dogmatism are kind of at the pole ends. So the question, really the question I think of our time is what is more dangerous for humanity? If we all left religion and some people would then become nihilists and just say nothing matters, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. Or if we all go back to religion but it's nuanced, but then you're going to get some fundamentalism. Which one is worse? Which one is more dangerous for the future of humanity um, as we're deciding what to do with religion? Yeah, so I, I love the, yeah, I love the question. What, what comes to mind there, yeah? What, go, what comes to mind for you there? So first off, let's, let's start off by saying that um, both are dangerous, and I think we acknowledge that, that but I, I don't think we need to feel pulled into one or the other. So the way the question's framed, and I think religion loves the question, you know, if you have to pick what, between these two, which one is it and which one's worse? And, and the reality is that we live in a world where we don't have to take either one of those. Now, let me start with nihilism. Nihilism, if nothing matters, then people who are internally uh, – willing to compromise. And again, it's not even compromise, right? If nothing matters, you're not compromising anything. But in nihilism, there's a negative energy there that uh, folks are um, motivated to do whatever they want to do. And and it can be at the expense of somebody else because, again, nothing matters. And dogmatism does the same thing, except it picks and chooses who it does good things to and who it doesn't dogmatism separates everyone into us and them. And it's a space that promotes judgment and shame and tribal unhealthiness. And so both of these are bad. And, and, and yet most of the world, I think, is still leans into one of those. And the other one, I don't think we've, we've got a large number of people who have uh, gravitated towards that yet. But, you've, but you gave me essentially a Sophie's choice. And you said, like, it's got to be one of these two and which one's worse. And I just don't feel that. Now, I do want to recognize you and I have uh, a common friend, Thomas McConkie, who uh, has a lot of kind of Buddhist uh, Buddhism in him. And one of the things he mentioned to me in a conversation once was that uh, dogmatism or tribalism, uh, which I think are very interconnected, tribalism, at some point, we humans developed 
uh, ethnocentricity. We developed tribalism. And, and that development, as Thomas said, likely saved the human race. And because at some point we were individualistic, we were family-oriented maybe, and, it, and we start to gather in bigger and bigger groups. And in spite of the fact that there's a negative there, which is the bigger groups just kill the smaller groups when, when they're separated into us and them. It's also a reality that those larger groups survived and flourished to the point where now here we are in modern society. And so humans may have very well have survived simply by developing ethnocentricity. And, and if you understand spiral dynamics and Ken Wilber, moving into some of those early colors allowed the human race to perpetuate and, and to some degree to flourish. And so dogmatism, while being a negative, I think also minus some major, you know, everybody pushes the red button and shoots nuclear bombs at each other. Dogmatism is going to continue perpetuating the human race. If everybody had a nihilistic view, I don't, I don't know what would happen with that. And so my, my two senses that nihilism is more dangerous I wouldn't. I would rather have an entire collective population walking around with us and them tribes, and with um, kind of self-imposed, collectively imposed system myths and mythologies that push people into these camps. Because I think humans will still figure out a way to 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 continue on and to develop progress. If every single human being on the planet were nihilistic. I, I have no idea what that would look like. But again, I come back to this idea that I don't think we have to be pulled into either one of those camps. I, I think there's a better way to live out a life well-lived. And and I hope we through these questions, I think some of this is going to come out naturally. And so um, I'll leave it at that. If you make me pick, okay. I'm actually going to pick dogmatism. And if I am allowed to add extra choices in, if there's a box for other, I'm going to mark box other every time. So my pushback would be that although, I mean, religion has co-evolved with humans for very specific reasons. It gives us things that we right? Mm-hmm. And, and even someone who's as atheist as Sam Harris says, would say that there's been times in history where religion, your tribe, your dogma, your myth, it really was, for the science that was available at the time, the best way to go. So you don't have to really give up anything for that argument. My, my only pushback would be is that as we're coming now in the century where these tribes now present existential risk, now philosophers and, and religious theologians are talking about, well, if we, if we leave religion to, if we, um, if we allow dogmatism to kind of continue just because it's natural for us, then, and we, and let's assume even that we're the only life ourselves up over our myths. We've done something catastrophic, right? Because now we have the power to not fight as tribes, which is kind of a small problem. Now we actually have the power to erase all life on planet Earth because we're so sure Jesus is coming that we're not going to care about global warming, recycling, whatever. And so when it comes to now that we're talking about existential risk, dogmatism is much more dangerous historically uh, because you do things in groups that you wouldn't necessarily do on your own, right? Or or couldn't accomplish on your own, right? You couldn't even accomplish it on your own. If everybody had their own, I don't care, nothing matters, um, the chances of, you know, a thousand people banding together and doing the same kinds of things is, is certainly more difficult. 
Right. And so my intuition would be, and I've talked to a couple, couple other people about this. My, my intuition is that when you're talking about personal human happiness and development, that nihilism is more, it just doesn't get you out of the bed and you're just not going to doing the things that you do to get human flourishing. Um, and it's going to be more dangerous for kind of levels of human happiness as we move forward. But when you throw in existential risk, which is this idea that we have the capacity to truly blow ourselves out of oblivion, um, and, and including global warming, there's something there that is extra dangerous where I would be more willing to say, you know what, we're going to move into some depression as we're leaving religion, but we have to, because if we don't, we're going to blow ourselves up in our tribe. And there's something to that argument that makes dogs more dangerous, even if nihilism is actually more uh, damaging, flourishing. Yeah. And I, I agree a hundred percent with both of those perspectives and um, the only thing I've got to come back with is I, I, again, I agree. I just, I don't think that we humans are being pulled towards nihilism. And I think we absolutely are collectively being slowly encouraged uh, through a, through a thousand platforms. And I don't even, not even, some of these aren't even human platforms. Some of these are just the universe doing what it does and uh, the process of science and evolution and, I think we humans are being nudged out of dogmatism. And and there are a large group of humans on the planet right now. You saw this recently with the storming the Capitol, with all the stuff that was going on during the election. Um, you would certainly see a, a group of humans that are balking at that. They are pushing back and their dogma is getting, you know, the backfire effect is working really well with these folks. And they're entrenching themselves even further into their dogmatism. But I think collectively, when you look at the human race, I don't see the human race moving into nihilism. Uh, and I don't see the human race uh, growing bigger in dogmatism. I think there's something else happening. And I think that thing happening is, is to me, something worth looking at and, and pointing out, which is that there are other options. And those options include, when I look at folks... Uh, like Eckhart Tolle or Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson, for that matter. If I look at folks um, like Joe Rogan and the conversations that he has on his podcast, when I look at the books that are being written, the things that are being talked about, it feels like people are moving into a space. And we're going to hit on this a bunch as we go through some of these questions where you try to kind of wrestle with spirituality and what it means to be spiritual. Um, I think something else is happening and I like the something else that's happening. And, and I don't think that we have to form, a, you know, this conversation and obviously you don't because the questions don't reflect that, but we don't have to form this conversation around the idea that there are these two things, dogmatism and nihilism. I, I think all of us who are smart enough can stand up and go, neither one of those are good options. People are obviously leaving the one and they're not gravitating to the other. And hence, something else must be desired or wanted or needed or um, there's just something else happening that I think most humans are finding more interesting than, than those two really, you know, violent, uh, capable of, of atrocity, those kinds of spaces that, that you're kind of hitting on there. I, I think there are other places to go. So, there's definitely, yeah, the, 
Yeah, so the reason that I want to kind of place out this pendulum is because in between, there's this really delicious space of a really rich spiritual life that is not too dogmatic and not too moral relativist, right? And what I sensed from the conversation between you and Phil is that you were coming at this kind of middle ground from two different uh, sides. Almost. Yeah, very and different. What I sense from you is that like, you're an Enneagram eight, Bill. Like you like something to push up against a little bit. Yeah. You can handle in your life a little bit more chaos. Um, it's really just your personality type. And it's also, you know, as someone who's had religious trauma and you're also talking to other people about their religious trauma, you're more willing to allow a little bit more chaos, a little bit more exploration, a little bit more uh, coming from that side of... Um, of nihilism, but you're not there, but coming more from that side where you can handle a little bit more chaos. Whereas Phil, you can tell just from his personality and type, he's still someone who's very drawn to, to, uh, to Jesus, to, um, you know, to a daily practice. Yeah. He likes order a little bit yeah. more. He's talking to people about pornography and he's so, you can tell by this conversation that when you're talking to each other about something like pornography, that he's so worried about chaos that can ensue that he just would rather just like, let's just not touch this at all. Right. right. So what I sense is that as you're debating each other, you and Phil, you're not debating two different stances. You're coming to a middle ground from two different paths from two different sides of the century. And that's what made that conversation so Right. And so while yes, there is this kind of beautiful space that we're moving into. And for some people, that's going to look like nuanced religion, right. which I think is really, some of that is really healthy. You know, if you're going to be a Mormon, be a Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason Mormon. If you're going to be a Christian, be a Richard Rohr Christian. Like there's some beautiful ways of ordering a life uh, through religious paths. But I think the, the one of the issues that we're coming up against is if you're coming to a spiritual life from the other side, so you've left religion or you were raised in a secular environment, there's not as much resources to get you to human flourishing as there is on the nuanced religion side. Religion just really has the upper hand in resources. And so if that's the problem that we're coming up against is that if you're leaving religion and you're not replacing it, if you're not replacing all the things that religion gave you, now you can, we are getting higher indications of people moving into nihilism, not because you have to, not because you should, but because the resources to keep you away from that place are so much less because it's so new, you know? Atheism is, is, is new. It's a new idea to build a rich spiritual life with connection to ancestry and gratitude and service and rituals for your children without any kind of God or religion touching any of that is very difficult. And I think what we're finding is that it's more difficult than people realize. And um, we see this sometimes in the smugness of the ex-Mormon or post-Mormon community where it's so easy to tear down uh, how messed up Mormonism can be. And then you ask them, well, you know, what rituals are you going to do for your children that when they come of age or when they get married? And what are you doing for personal contemplation time? What are you doing for this? What are you... And if the answer is nothing, 
then it really may be that you could have been a better person through Mormonism because you're not doing there are some people who are uh, who could have been better if they would have stayed in some kind of religious context because they're not doing the work to uh, give their life the things that really want to feed them. So a good analogy would be if if uh, if you're talking about physical exercise and you join some company program, Beachbody or something, and let's say for the sake of argument that this company is really abusive and dogmatic and this is the only way to exercise and blah 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 and you end up leaving the exercise program because it's not working for you that's great you can do that but if you sit on the couch and don't do any physical exercise or eating healthy on your own are you really truly any better than when you you know working with a trainer who wasn't really that great and so that's the problem that we're running into and uh even a couple weeks ago lindsay hansen park she posted on her facebook uh, um can, you know, women, can you share your stories of ex-Mormon men and how, how that's going when you're dating ex-Mormon men? And the unbelievable majority, I mean, I think the comments got up to a thousand, over a thousand, was that women were expecting that if you've left the church, that things would be better because there'd be kind of a shared experience. But what they found was that these were just the same patriarchal men with no sexual boundaries. And so the amount of, there's no other way to say it, the amount of dick pics that were being sent by ex Mormon men because they left the religion, but they hadn't replaced it with anything. And so now they just have no sexual boundaries whatsoever. And so, you know, you just go on these dating apps and send pictures of your genitals. It was just unbelievable. And so we have to be able to look at ourselves and say, okay, if we're leaving religion because it's doing damage, that's great but we have to be replacing it with something or else it's really not that much better. Yeah. So there, yeah. Yep. So there, let me start off by saying there certainly are folks and there's a lot of them. It's a large portion of the population that are in, again, we could go through like Fowler stage three or an early color and spiral dynamics. Uh, There are folks who are binary thinkers. They, they need organization. They need rules. They need boundaries. They need, there to be an invisible man in the sky who's watching them so that they will conform. And that's the end goal in, in any of these systems is to get you to conform in a way that allows the system to flourish. Now, we don't do a very good job in our education system, for example, in our homes collectively, in our communities or systems or organizations that we belong to. We don't do a very good job of giving people the tools and resources to move them along that path and to exit that that ethnocentric view and begin to develop uh, or individuate, develop individuality and, and be able to start making real life decisions kind of based on who you are and what's going on inside of you. We don't teach people to look at their shadows or unhealthiness. We don't teach people about ego and helping people to confront their egos because your ego serves you in that first half of life protecting you. But in the second half of life, it is really doing lots of damage and preventing deeper relationships and preventing deep growth within you. So as as we humans are evolving and progressing and thinking and learning and wrestling, as our interaction with scientific ideas helps us develop and broaden the things we understand and how things work and, you know, what the body's doing, what the mind is doing. 
I think it's going to be natural. I think it's going to be natural for us to move into a much better, healthier space. And, and it's going to take time. Like if, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're lighting your, your torch and grabbing your pitchfork and expecting change to happen overnight, it's not, it's just never been the way that things go, but slowly I think we're moving to a space where we are gravitating. Just, and I'll just use this as an example. I know I'm stammering, but there's so many kind of cool thoughts that come up in these questions. If you look at Joe Rogan's podcast, his podcast became enormously popular and still is. Uh, he just signed with Spotify a $100 million 10-year deal. Uh, the number of listeners he has is amazing. And he's having conversations on there where people are just throwing out good ideas and his collective audience, which is huge, is gravitating towards learning those things. Um, I know folks who are deeply inside believing religious systems who listen to that podcast, and you can see the wheels turning, and they're they're beginning to deconstruct stuff. So I'm willing to kind of wait it out. Like I think the world's going to figure this out, and and other things could happen too. We could certainly all enter into you know. Dog, dogmatic battles with each other and annihilate each other and move back into a, even a hunter-gatherer society if we broke down um, system structures too far. But I see people learning to be a better version of their self. And I think that's the movement that's picking up steam. And I think human beings are figuring out that they can be good, growing, developing people without religion. And I, and I think that they're also, even though we're in a sense in agreement, if there is no God, then, then nothing really matters. I also think these folks are figuring out that even if we in our brain go, hey, that's the truth, I think somewhere inside the pieces and parts of, of, of who we are inside and our emotions, they're telling us something else, which is that you know, people around us matter, people of color matter, people of different sexual orientation matter, uh, the plants matter, the animals matter. I, I think we humans over the course of 200,000 years care more today um, ab about kind of this planet healthiness. And I get some groups had this Native Americans, by the way, had a very deep respect and understanding of this balance in the earth. Uh, and I think they've always done a really good job at understanding that and utilizing that in their uh, religious beliefs and, and doing it in other ways as well. But I think generally the human population didn't give a shit about the planet and, and we never have. And, and then in this recent moment, the last, whatever, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, there seems to be this growing sentiment to be um, aware of kind of what we eat and whether they're living things that we're partaking of. Uh, to be more aware of the damage that's happening to this planet and to begin to want to take care of it. Um, you see these movements where we're exiting tribalism and we're standing up for people who are different than us, people of color, people of sexual orientation, uh, different ethnicities, different um, different folks who are uh, find themselves on the margins and, and are being picked on. There are groups of people who are standing up and saying enough is enough and in a larger extent than has ever been done, I think, before. And, and so I see the world moving into good places. I don't, I don't 
perceive us falling off the wagon here. I think this is a growing movement. And so I think as people begin to become more aware and understand what's happening, some of these things are going to begin to be implemented into our educational system. Uh, I think as we have a better awareness of what sexuality is, I think that has had movements within our education system, sometimes fought deeply by the dogmatic religious right. But I think it's happening. I think we slowly are adopting healthier perspectives around sex, around race, around sexual orientation, around the planet, around the scientific processes that contribute to that. I'm really excited about where we're going. And and I would simply finish kind of my comment here by saying that it's going to take time and it's going to be slow. And you and I are going to take our last breath long, long, long before all these things sort themselves out. But I, I like the direction we're going. It is, it is exciting, and, and there is so much going on that is replacing the old and really beautiful ways that we should highlight. I think one, a couple that stand out to me is, is the popularity of the Yale course, the free, it's become free now because it's so popular, of just the science of happiness, right? And so these burned out Yale students are across the board showing up for this class. It's just a class in how to be happy. That's it. That's the, that's the nature of the class. It was so popular um, that it's now offered as a free course for everyone and thousands and thousands of us. And, and you know, we, we maybe don't go to church and listen to sermons anymore, but we will listen to TED Talks or Brene Brown and other places where we're finding inspiration. So yes, across the board, we are filling these gaps as we're leaving um, dogmatic religion. And all of that is very exciting, um, is very positive, really beautiful things happening. I think what we have to be honest about, though, is that because of because it's so new and because um, we're just kind of bumping into these things as we're trying to fill these holes that religion once filled for us, is that we make mistakes, for one, that when you ask the, you know, when you ask kids about how connected they feel to themselves and the world and other people, and when you kind of quiz them on their spiritual life, there's there is a lot of disconnection and and depression and not knowing what I want to do with my life and and that kind of stuff that you wouldn't have found maybe a hundred years ago. And I think we also need to be honest that it is harder. And this is what I really want to talk to the post-Mormon community about is that if you decide to leave Mormonism for a hundred percent legitimate reason, you have to accept that even though there are really exciting things happening, the intention that it takes for you to do all the things that religion once gave you. So, so ritual, service, gratitude, quiet, community, creativity, prophetic voice, morality, raising children, awe, ancestry, purpose. That is a lot of stuff that is built, it's baked into religion, right? That's why it co-evolves. And so I think we have to be honest that if you decide to leave, you have to realize that although there are great things to fill all of those voids, it takes a degree of intention and work that is often harder than when you were in the religion, right? So something like raising children, um, if you want to have a lesson every week, with songs and coloring books and pictures and heroes and villains, and all the things that are age appropriate for kids. And you have to build that from scratch based on your beliefs as they are right now that are unique to you. 
that is very difficult. And religion has thousands of years of experience um, in putting together something like a curriculum like that for, for children all the way on your own. That doesn't mean that it's impossible. That doesn't mean that it's not more beautiful if you were to do it. But I think some people have this notion that, you know, Mormonism or whatever religion isn't fitting with me, I'm going to leave, not realizing that it takes intention to do it on your own, to put in all those pieces. And when you do, it's going to be incredibly beautiful. It's going to be a vibrant, rich, human flourishing kind of life that is unique to you. And that's amazing. But it does take work. And I think we underestimate the work that it takes. Ooh, I, I, I agree that if you're going to leave this thing that handed you every platform, every venue in order to have your life keep moving along, uh, it gives you places to connect with your children at certain ages. It gives uh, certain steps to progress. It gives you the idea that if you work hard in this life, that you'll get something in the next. It absolutely gives you a thousand ways to stay productive, to feel productive, to uh, have some sort of way to pass down tradition and knowledge uh, to the generation coming behind you. Um, it does all of that. And so you're 100% right that when you step away from that, you have to take the active role in doing something. And, and I'm not doing that perfectly. There are ways in which leaving religion and chilling out a little bit has left me having less uh, order and rigidity, less interaction even with my kids, for instance. Um We've got one kid at home. We've got three that are now adulting out in the world. And that one kid at home, he doesn't get near as much personal interaction with his parents as his three older siblings uh, did simply for the fact that I'm just, I'm to a point in my life where I don't want to have this, uh, the schedule or these planned things to do. We're just winging it and it ends up being, hey, tonight we're going to go out to dinner. Hey, tonight we're going to take him. Tomorrow night we're going to go by ourselves. Hey, we're going to go hang out with friends. Hey, we're going to go do this on, go to brunch on Sunday morning. And and so it, it certainly, when it comes to raising your children, it certainly has you finding benefits and negative consequences. So you, you mentioned raising kids and here I am talking about it. Let me say this. People ask me all the time, Bill, now that you've left religion, how does that impact your children? And I'm always saying like, it's good and bad. My kids are much more likely to make bad choices or unhealthy choices, I should say, uh, maybe irresponsible choices uh, during their time kind of growing up because they don't have this thing that's working with mom and dad, meaning religion. But you don't have this thing that's working with mom and dad to kind of keep them on this path. And so, they, and they also don't feel pressure that there's an, a, an invisible being in the sky who's going to send them to hell or heaven if they mess it up today or get it right today. And so, as as kids of parents who are disconnecting from religious systems, those kids are much more prone to go, you know, kind of that nihilistic approach and go, "Hey, rules are arbitrary constructs. Rules don't really matter. Um, I can kind of do whatever I want." And so why not try this? Why not try that? Why not do this? Why not do that? What I also find though is the positive side of it, which is my kids, the three that have adulted and the one that is, you know, he's 15 years old and he's, he's pretty mature for his age. What I found is my four children are what I think are better humans. They're going to be better adults. They're going to be critical thinkers. They're going to um, 
understand social issues and stand up for people who are different than them. They've been given the tools to be productive, contributing, progressing, growing, thinking adults. And so I've had to let go of needing them to be something. And and sometimes that leads to them making a choice or two more that I'm not really proud of um, as they kind of figure out how the world works. But on the other side of that, I'm really proud of where this process leads to them to as adults. And I think they're much more capable of being successful out in the world by adapting and adopting this critical thinking attitude and by testing everything and by seeing value in their voice and not accepting outer authorities automatically. Like all of this has been good for them. And it's also had some extra bumps in the road. And I think you have to kind of accept that there are pros and cons to this process. Um, I hope, I don't know if that answers your original question, but I think it's important yeah. to know that the, none of never, never is life a win-win or a lose-lose and, and that everything we do, even if we make the yeah. best and healthiest choices, yeah, yeah, there's consequences. It's important to talk about as you're taking your kids out of religion. But it, this is the question that I end up thinking a lot about for a couple of reasons. One, my children are toddlers, so I really have the choice now to kind of decide how I want to, to raise them. But the, the question that we're coming up against, and I talk to a lot of theologians about this, it's kind of where there's this real hot spot of needing human ingenuity is that if you're an adult and you go through a faith transition, there's a thousand resources that are going to help you with your shadow self or meditation or um, or, or books and, and people that you can kind of model how you want your... But with the kids, the thing about kids is that they can't go to where you are, right? There's a phase in childhood where those rituals and that identity and that self sense of self and building up security and building up a sense that this is right and this is wrong. Um, even my son who's nine, he's very much in the age developmentally where there are heroes and there are villains and that's it. Like they're not complicated, right? Heroes aren't really, um, you know, tragic heroes. And, you know, there, there's no um, mixing in good guys and bad guys. You are a good guy or you are a bad guy. And so the problem that we're running up against is that if you're in a nuanced, more more beautiful, working for you space, spirituality, and now you have a kid who can just understand right and wrong, good guy and bad guy, how do you do that in a way that builds up their identity, sense of self and security in a way that's healthy for them for that age, but that won't keep them stuck there, right, when they turn 15, 18, 21, 30, whatever, where they can kind of grow out of that original identity. And that's such a hard problem to solve. It's truly difficult. There's no, for example, if you want to put uh, your kid in a preschool that has some kind of moral education, there's no preschool run by secular Buddhists, right? There's no preschool run by Richard Rohr nuanced Christians that, that take each Bible story and do it a little bit different so it's not so scary. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing these adults who are in a highly nuanced place in their spirituality put their kids back in the Catholic preschool with the moral education because they just really see no other option as far as a moral education. And they figure that's what we did. They'll just go through this process and then, you know, hopefully they'll grow out of the more dangerous things that they're learning or, you know, the elementary school. 
Yeah. And so there's a couple things happening. You know, we're trying to fill in this gap, but but it's it's hard because you have to develop identity. And so my challenge when I'm you know talking with parents about what to do with kids, and and for myself, it took it took my husband and I years of of communication and and processing our faith transitions to actually sit down with this paper and say, how are we going to celebrate when my kid turns 12 or 18? And what are our holidays and what do we do? And what are our hero stories that I'm going to read to my kids over and over? And what are the songs I'm going to do that as lullabies? And what are the programs in my community like karate or other things that bring them discipline and, and access to other adults? And how can we connect as a family? What is our family dinner situation like? What are our traditions? What? And so you have to, especially if you have you have young children and trying to build up a sense of family identity. It takes a ton of effort and intention when you uh, and your partner or you on your own to give children a firm sense of boundary with enough room that it's not dogmatic and doesn't shut up their inner voice. And that takes incredible amount of work and attention on the front end. And I think it's something we don't talk about enough in the post-Mormon and ex-Mormon communities because, um, you know, sometimes that may be because we go through big transition later in our life when our kids are grown. Um, but it's just, there's just an overwhelming sense that I get from people that I don't know what to do about my young children. I don't know how to create this environment that I was raised in, in a way that feels authentic to me now. And I think we just have to, even though it can be done and we're starting to do it, um, I think we have to talk about how hard that is so that people know that when they leave, that's great, but here are the things that you're going to have to sit down with a, with a piece of paper and actually figure out on your own so that your kids get the same benefits that you did in having a sense of self, having a sense of family identity that's very important for child development. And it's not talked about enough in post-religious. Yeah, and, and I think you're you're certainly pointing to something that we've got to figure out, um, but I but I'm also wondering. I mean, do do atheist parents do their kids turn out? You know, again, we're we're putting this into kind of a binary thing. Do they turn out good or bad? I don't I don't think the data the I don't think the data shows that uh, atheist children you know raised in an atheist home, for instance, and these parents just you know essentially started off without religion at all that these kids are ending up in high numbers in the prison system or, uh, you know, with, with criminal charges on a more consistent basis being applied to them. I, I think the, I think people figure these things out and, and I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying that there aren't hiccups and I'm not saying that it's a flawless transition, but only that if you take people who have no God in their life and now they're having children and they're raising those children, those children also seem to be doing fairly well out in the world. Um, and, and so something's happening that these kids are, are figuring it out. And so I think maybe on some level we're, we're fearing something. And I think there are things, as I said before, I think there are things that are lost when your kids, uh, when you exit religion and you're now trying to supply your kids with the things that religion gave you. But I also think that coming 
from no religion that you're supplying your kids with things that they're going to be some, you know, somewhere in their insides, they're going to be grateful that they didn't receive the trauma or the unhealthy perspectives or the unhealthy teaching or the unhealthy approach to different humans or uh, to people who are different than them. I think something's one too. And I think in the end, the kids of parents who had have never had any religion in their life, they, they, turn out fine. They're, they're not struggling out in the world. And, and so maybe this is, maybe there's a fear here that isn't reasonable. And, and I'm not saying like there isn't problems. Like I think you could, I think you're pointing to it, which is if we say like, look, if we take a, you know, parents and they leave the church at 25 and they've got these young kids and now these kids have less structure that these systems are designed to positively pass on along with a bunch of negative things, these kids are missing out and they don't get these certain attributes or they don't get this certain kinds of exposure. And, and I think you're right, but I also think they get other things. So as my kids left religion with me, as my wife and I uh, approached the world differently, I think our kids continued to grow and progress and to think and I think leaving religion was a net positive for them and they are better off having done that. And we didn't work our rear ends off giving them the things that maybe religion did well. We didn't. And yet they still figured it out. And I think most people figure it out regardless, you know, again, we could talk about people who live in homes of abuse in homes of consistent trauma and how those kids tend to grow up. Um, passing, holding on to some of that and passing it on now to their kids. That's also true. But if we, if we allow people to stop feeling shame and guilt for not taking every single positive thing from their religion and creating some new system in their home to now pass that on, and just to acknowledge that human beings generally and collectively seem to figure out what it means to be a good human being and tend to go off into the world being messy and complicated, still making mistakes, still doing things wrong, still, still getting ourselves in trouble from time to time. But, but these humans tend to, to find out how the world works and they tend to, you know, they hold a job and they, they get married and they have kids themselves and they have new trauma that they've received. It's different from the trauma their parents had. And they also fix some stuff that their parents haven't been able to correct yet. And, and I think that's the human journey. And, and I think to put so much pressure on people and to say, hey, you, you got to grab all these things from religion and you got to keep, you know, you still got to sit down once a week and do family home evening, whether you're Mormon or not. I don't think it's true. I think you can just take your kids out bowling on a Sunday afternoon and you can accomplish the same kinds of things in terms of having time to connect with them. Like we're family and, and we spend unique kinds of time together. Um, I think you can um, have chances for conversation. I'm constantly talking to my kids about uh, unhealthy mechanisms that we have. I'm, I'm constantly telling my kids, hey, I, w- I would read this book. I would read that book. And my kids sometimes do and sometimes they don't. But I'm certainly facilitating ways in which they can see what it means to be a good human being, um, learn and discover what that means, and begin to show up in the world in healthier ways than, than what they were yesterday. And I think that happens whether we hold on to religion or whether we let it go. And I'm actually tempted to say maybe it goes faster and better uh, if religion isn't, isn't one of the barriers that's in the way. So here's how I, I hear you. And I, I, 
here's why I'm coming at it a little bit, a little bit different. So if you're raised in a secular home, I'm reading a book by a book by Sasha Sagan, Carl Sagan's daughter. Um, so she was raised in a very scientific home, but it had its own um, family dynamics, right? Family activities, family, what they did, what they talked about at dinner. And, um, you know, there's, there's nothing missing there, right? She grew up to be a quite beautiful, flourishing woman um, in this kind of scientific, secular home, right? No, no argument there, right? It, it can be done. I think what I'm running into as I'm, as I'm talking with people and studying is that because when you're leaving a religious institution, you have some level of trauma and you have certain allergies, right? And I, I think you've experienced this. I think we've actually talked about this before where those first few years where you're transitioning, anything that feels like a truth claim or has any kind of sense of religiosity attached to it, your entire body like lights up as if like this is dangerous. I'm not comfortable. I'm not okay with whatever's going on here. Right. There can be some level of trauma there. And I think what that does, and I think what we have to talk about in ex-Mormonities, particularly ones where there's levels of trauma, which is I would say almost everyone who who leaves has some level of, of trauma. Um, because there's because there's a reaction to things that are spiritual because they've been colored by these negative experiences. There's a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think you're a little bit different, yeah. um, or you are now, especially. But I remember times years ago, Bill, where you would walk away from a Sunday school shaking, right? You are shaking from your head to your toe because of spiritual trauma that is now releasing itself like I remember when you were going through those. And so if that's where you are in your spiritual journey and you have kids that are singing songs and reading stories and whatever, all of that is going to be incredibly triggering to the point that you may just, as you're walking away, just put up a huge boundary where we're not going to do any of it, right? Because of X, Y, Z reasons. And so I think what we have to acknowledge is that there is... There is a baby in this bathwater, you know, in, in spirituality, even in religion, there are there are good elements. And if you are um, not that you have to do this right away, you didn't. I, but if you don't process the trauma, if you don't find new ways to continue to grow, which you did, right? Your whole journey has been, especially the past few years, Will, uh, with Almost Awakened Podcast, is that you're still growing spiritually, right? But if you're not doing that, then there's something that your kids are going to miss, I think. And I think that there's some evidence of this, um, where if you are raised in a family that has no rich, has no family traditions, has really no family culture, right? And, and there are times where people in religious institutions, when they leave, they have so few resources and they're so triggered. Their level of triggering is so high that the kids miss out on something. You know, they're, they're not singing songs. They're not doing things as a family because the parents really just don't know and haven't processed through all that trauma and they don't know how to kind of build up a family dynamic without it. And, and that's why so many of these conversations, we look to secular Jews in America as such a great example of a people that, I mean, there are rabbis that are just full on atheists, right? That's not incredibly uncommon. They've been a religion for so long 
that their hold on claims is so loose. But they've kept so much of the language and the food and the stories. And there's something about that family identity that is incredibly interesting and fun and healthy for children that I think we need to look to as we're leaving because if we just stay in our trauma and our triggers, then our kids never get to experience the spiritual things that maybe we got to experience as kids that were healthy for us. And again, that's not everyone, but I think there's a pattern there that we talk about, not because kids can't be raised in secular homes and turn out to be great kids. In fact, when it comes to stuff like sexuality, you know, fundamental homes have a way higher uh, risk of teenage pregnancies than, than secular homes. So it's not that you can't raise kids without religion. It's not that kids miss something you raise them. It's that it's that if your trauma and, and triggers from anything around spirituality or family dynamics is tainted by your negative experiences and you never kind of build something beautiful in its place, I do think you can say that there is something missing. We do see that kids who don't have family family dinners or family activities, that, that there is a higher rate of things like prison like that because there's just nothing holding this family together. That does have to be intentional, especially if you're coming from trauma. Oh, I love it. I love it. So if you're if you're in religion and you believe religion, and especially if your religion is a high demand fundamentalist religion, then you're receiving so much unhealthiness and you don't even know it. You're not even aware of it. You're not even it has taken me so long to look back and and the further distance I put between me and the unhealthy system I belonged to, the more I see how unhealthy that system was. And it's taken me a lot of time to wrestle with that and to wrestle with what good did it do? What bad did it do? And, and how did it manipulate and shame and traumatize me in a million different ways that I'm still trying to kind of figure out in my insides, like what to do with it. And so on one hand, you're acknowledging like people who stay in religion, they, they are receiving trauma. They're being taught unhealthy things. They are, being hurt in ways they don't even know. And yet there's also positive things to the structure in terms of passing down tradition and knowledge and, and, and giving children these stepping stones to grow into being happy, productive adults. And then you're acknowledging, on the other hand, you're saying like, hey, atheists can do that too and are. And here are stories of folks who are doing that and being successful and raising their children right and giving the children a solid foundation. And what you're pointing to is the problem is this in-between story where somebody starts off in religion and deconstructs that. And now because of all the trauma that they've had, they're essentially screwing it up uh, as parents, which I did. I did some of that. Let me, let me go back and tell a little story. My great-grandfather was not a very good human being. And my great-grandfather uh, ended up, I don't know what he did. I just know from doing family history work that that my grandfather knew very little about his dad, that, that other folks in my family had very little context of who this man was. We can pinpoint him running away from something in one state, and he ends up in Ohio where my grandfather and his siblings are raised. My grandfather and his siblings are also raised in this dysfunctional home. So by the time my grandfather becomes a grown man and he gets married and he starts having children, he has eight kids. He's abusive. He's, he's a drinker. Uh, he gets angry. 
Um, he is having issues of infidelity. He is physically abusive to my dad and my dad's siblings. And he is passing on this trauma, right? He's, he's left the system of his home and he continues to do damage in spite of probably seeing his dad as dysfunctional and knowing that these things were not healthy. And yet somehow he carries some of that with him. And now we fast forward to my father. My father never laid a hand on me or my brother. My dad was nothing but kind. My dad was nothing but the the opposite of whatever those negative traits that his father had. Now, some of his siblings held on to some of that and they passed some of that on to their kids. My dad didn't. And, and, And so I think every one of us, as we come out of unhealthy systems, whether those systems are the family we were raised in, whether those systems are... Uh, religious systems, whether those systems are certain cultures, like if you lived in an area uh, where there are Islamic extremists on every block and holding guns out windows, like that also is an unhealthy system that you either leave and do something different with, or you continue to carry the unhealthy parts with you. And, and all I'm saying is you're right. We've got to figure out how to do this more efficiently and more effectively. And that it's going to take time to do it. And then my argument would also be that, that it's also happening and, and that if you just sit and watch human beings deconstruct unhealthy systems and walk away, they may be doing a really shitty job in that first generation. I, I know there are parts of what I did that was a really shitty job with my kids um, as I came out of that and became a different kind of human being. I sat down one time at a dinner with my children and I, and I said, Hey guys, I, I want to be really vulnerable at this meal. And I want to talk to you about something. I said, I want to, I want to, first off, I want to say I was, I was really kind of an asshole to each of you when you were younger. And by the way, during this conversation, I've got kids who are crying because their dad for the first time is kind of owning his unhealthiness as he's talking to them. And so I'm talking to my kids and I'm like, Hey guys, I was an asshole. I, I was so set on knocking it out of the park in this system that I felt huge amounts of pressure to be great at Mormonism. And hence when, and, and, and also you guys, my kids, you guys, and my wife, I perceived you as a reflection of what kind of Mormon I was. In other words, if you guys weren't all hitting it out of the park, then people would perceive me not hitting it out of the park. And so anytime I saw you doing something other than what my insides wanted you to do, I would lash out with anger and I would sometimes yell or I would sometimes be, I would ground you for the smallest of things. And I said, that was not appropriate. That was my disturbance internally causing me to react to the outside world and try to put the outside world back into order so that my disturbance could go away. I said, I'm really sorry for that, you guys. I, I wasn't the best dad. And I'm also going to tell you this, kids, which is I'm probably not going to be the best dad now because I've come out of this unhealthy system and I no longer want to lash out. I'm, I'm also a little more apathetic. I, I don't want to be as intensely involved. I'm exhausted. Leaving this thing has me exhausted. And, and I just need to kind of take it easy for a while. And so I stopped being as interactive with my children, but I also stopped being an asshole with my children. And so if you ask my kids, like, 
dad in the church and dad out of the church, my kids to a T will go, man, I'd much rather sit with my dad out of the church and talk to him and, and go to dinner and have a conversation or talk about what's going on in my life, both good and bad. And, and so it's to say like, we just, we're just not going to correct this, at least not in the first generation. We're not going to solve the problem because you're right, Britt, that when people leave religion, they're sometimes going to balk so much at that unhealthiness that they also let go of some of the healthy things that religion helped them accomplish. And what we have to trust, like with my grandfather's story and my dad, is that, that if people want to figure it out, they can improve upon what their parents did. Can they solve it all? No. Are they going to carry some trauma to the next generation? Absolutely. And then their kids are going to figure out some of it and their kids are going to develop new trauma on their own. And, and so maybe, maybe the secret is just to cut everybody a break and say, you know what, whatever you do, do the best you can. And some of it's going to inflict new traumas. Some of it's going to carry old traumas. Some of it's going to fix old traumas. And some of it's going to never develop a new trauma because you walked away at the moment you did, or you stayed a little longer, you left a little sooner. And just to know, like, all of this is messy. And, and again, I'll also say too, I think a huge component, if we're saying like, here's the crux, the crux is how do we take people who, who deconstruct their religion, discover their religion is not only not true, but their religion was deeply unhealthy to them and to their relationships uh, and to their psyche, to their emotions. And as they leave, how can we help those folks have the tools and resources so that they become productive, contributing healthy, developing adults. And, and I think we have to, f- the folks who have figured it out, and, and I don't know if I'm one of those or not, I certainly feel happy. I feel like I'm learning. I feel like I'm engaged in relationships with people. I feel like I still have a community. I feel like um, I'm sitting with my, my unhealthy stuff and I'm working on me. And, and, and I look back from month to month and go, man, I'm making progress. I'm becoming a better human being. Oh, sure. I'm still messing it up and I still have lots of shadows, but I'm working on it and I see the progress. And as you pointed out, like, okay, Bill Reel's intentional. Well, I know, I know Brittany Hartley's intentional too. And, and so if we can just help human beings go like, hey, there's a better way to do this thing. And, and here are the tools and resources. Here are the books. Here are the podcast. Here are the, somebody pointed me to Esther Peril's Where Do We Begin podcast. It's a, it's a marriage therapy podcast. Esther Peril is a, a marriage, a relationship therapist. She's written numerous books. One of them is Mating in Captivity. She's brilliant. Somebody turned me and my wife onto her. We read her book, Mating in Captivity. We uh, loved it. We found her podcast, Where Do We Begin? And as we've listened to that podcast, we both would go and listen to an episode together, not at the same time, like she would go listen to it on the way to work and I'd listen to it on the way home from work. And then we'd come home and we'd go like, hey, what do we think about that? And, and we were finding like, it was marriage therapy for the two of us. Every session is a different couple. Nobody's names are given. And every episode is its own therapy session with a completely different couple each time. And so whatever their problems are, you get to kind of hear how she addresses those. And I see so much of myself and my wife saw so much of herself in these episodes that we started working on our own things. And I think the average human being wants to be better. I think it's evolutionarily programmed in us to try to improve upon the things that the past generation was and did 
And, and I think you see that progress in the human journey. I think as you look across 200,000 years, we've constantly adapted to better tools, better, a higher consciousness, um, more, more ways to be productive and to accomplish things. And some of that's been misguided, but I think the desire is innate inside of us. And so I think if we can figure out how to provide platforms and venues, if we can figure out how to provide um, voices that are loud enough out in the wilderness that people find it and gravitate towards it. Again, Joe Rogan would be a good example of that, where he starts a podcast. He's just a guy who did Fear Factor. He's just a stand-up comedian, but very quickly people gravitate towards him because he's offering some piece of truth that's helping them improve and grow. I think, I think we're doing that in greater and greater capacities. And that if we're just patient and look past the the mistakes that maybe the first generation is making as they move away from religion, and we just give time, like, like, like for instance, with my dad, who fixed his father's mistakes and didn't bring those mistakes into my home, that if we give people time and we, and we keep holding up the resources and the tools, that people will over time, through generations, will collectively gravitate towards things that are true and bring them happiness and help them become better than what they were yesterday. And so I think the thing that we all have to do is what we're doing here, which is saying, hey, here's a podcast. Hey, here's a book. Here's something I was reading. Here's something I was thinking about. How many times do you and I have conversations where we suggest materials to people and some of them take it and some of them don't, but the people who constantly feel nudged to take these nuggets and look at them and inspect them and wrestle with the thoughts that are within them. I think those folks are figuring out how to do it. Um, And the people who don't want to do any of that, they just want to leave religion and, you know, keep passing on whatever unhealthiness or not adopt new practices. I think it's human to sometimes not get it right too. You, you exemplify a lot of more patience than, than I think I'm, and I, I appreciate that point of view of just having some patience as we're, we're really dealing with can you, can you imagine, Britt, Britt, can you imagine 200,000 years? Let's just go, let's go back 50,000 years. You know, you're bathing once a week in the river. Your, your diet is pretty limited. Um, you're certainly, you know, you're the kinds of house that you lived in and, and you're sitting around and whatever the problems were in society 50,000 years ago, I got to imagine there's a whole plethora of different kinds of traumas being handed out, different kinds of religious beliefs that gave passed on tradition, but also caused lots of trauma. And you and I, if we lived 50,000 years ago, we'd be looking around and we'd be standing out at the, at the corner of the dirt path that, that people traveled through. And you and I would be complaining about the, the things that are going on. And then we'd be talking about the good and we'd figure out like, like what's, where's the progress at? And then you and I would go through our entire life going, well, that didn't get very far. We didn't get very far. And the reality is now we fast forward 50,000 years and so much has moved and changed. And I think you just have to, if you recognize that this, we're sitting on a flying rock and we're flying through space and time to some degree, and, and the world is always moving and shifting, um, 50,000 years from now, what will the world look like? And I've got to believe we were further, if we haven't all killed each other with, by pushing the red button and nuking each other, and if a, a meteor or an asteroid hasn't hit our planet and caused utter destruction, if those two things haven't happened and the, and the sun hasn't died out and we're still sitting here at this distance generally from the sun, then 50,000 years from now, 
I think humans are at a higher level of consciousness because that's where we've come from, right? Like, like we used to just rub sticks together and try to make a fire and killed a, a mammoth and, and ate dinner and went to sleep and danced around the fire. And, and now we're wrestling and thinking with all kinds of different things that 50,000 years from now that we've, we've made more progress. And, and by progress, I mean figuring out how to treat each other better, figuring out how to take better care of each other, of other life on the planet, of the planet itself. I just, I just think humans are designed to, to make improvements and to figure out the mistakes of the generation before and to little by little cast those off. And so, yes, if I look over the last 50,000 years, I have hope and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm excited, even though I won't get to see it, I'm excited to think about the possibilities of what it could be in another 50,000 years. Bill? Yeah. Oh, yep. Sorry. You're good. Uh, I lost you for a second. Um, I, I, was, I was just I done there. You're good. Okay. I had a couple of thoughts come to mind there. Um, I, this is just a matter of curiosity. And also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be... I'm going to meet your vulnerability with And I wonder how your story and how kind of your parenting journey would have been different if you were raised in the church and left the church at 25 and your kids are zero to four, six years old. And I just wonder, um, you know, as you're able to sit with your teenagers and be honest and that they were kind of ready for some of those discussions, I wonder how... Uh, your parenting journey would have been different if your kids were younger and they're four years old and it's the first time that they're really kind of comprehending that this is Christmas and your little boy sits on your lap and says, what's Christmas? And you have to kind of come up with something on the the spot there and how your family's going to do Christmas, Um, you know, not attending church. And I just wonder if that would have been a different journey for you. I'm sure it would have been. I don't know what that is, but... I think what you're digging into, as you mentioned earlier, when you said, I think that there's some fear going on, is that I, to be vulnerable, I, I do sense a little bit of fear, just in the sense that my children are so young, and they're also adopted, which is, um, you know, another element of building a family that I didn't birth, and they're also children of color, they don't look like me. And so leaving um, kind of the structure of of raising my kids in Mormonism on top of them being adopted already and uh, uh, not being white in a predominantly white area. I, I think you're right for me in the sense that it does bring up fear as far as uh, wanting to very intentionally build a family identity, family rituals, strong sense of family dynamic because I have a lot of pressure there in raising young children outside of the structure that the majority of their friends and family um, are a part of. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, you sensed earlier that there was some fear in, in kind of being overwhelmed with, with replacing everything that really gave you. And I can definitely vulnerably say that, that I experienced that fear from time to time, particularly because of the added element of my part of the family. And um, so I just so appreciate your patience and your willingness to just say you're going to do something right and something's wrong and they're going to do something right and something's wrong and the world keeps on turning, hopefully, and we don't blow each other up. And that's just the way that it goes. And I, I appreciate that just kind of bird's eye view, 
patience of this process because I do sometimes, and I know I'm not alone in this, you know, as I'm raising children, really fear, you know, how can I um, intentionally kind of build this family um, when I'm doing it so differently than all my friends and family. You know, that that's an element of risk when you're doing that, when you're doing something different than everyone else around you. There is an element of risk there, and, and it brings up some natural fear. Yeah, and I'm... I'm lucky. I as a as a convert to the unhealthy system, I didn't have all the I'll use the word brainwashing, but but I think we're all being brainwashed everywhere. Our our educate I don't mean that just as a slight towards that system in our in my education of growing up in uh, grades K through 12 in my experience in college. Um I don't think there's any choice but to be brainwashed by the narratives and arbitrary constructs around you. So that said, I'm lucky that I was a convert to my system as an older teenager. I'm, I'm lucky that I had parents who never stepped into that system. So I had some balance as I'm interacting with my family that they don't hold any of those kinds of beliefs or dogma. They have different kinds of beliefs and dogma. So I'm, I'm seeing like, oh, here's my in-laws. Here's my parents. Here's the unhealthiness they got from their system. Here's the things their system helped them to be better than my parents. Um, and I think it is a mixed bag. I'm lucky in that my move to Southern Utah from Ohio was essentially 100% positive and it helped me. It gave me a space to find community because there were people down here who also left my system. If I had stayed in Ohio, we would have had to have found a new community. Whereas down here in Southern Utah, the community found me. And, and so finding friends and developing deep, authentic, vulnerable relationships with other human beings came pretty easy. And so I think you're also pointing to something true, which is every situation is different. Some of us are going to have easier access to leaving the system and finding a healthy, productive life. And others of us are perhaps, and and maybe even I should say most assuredly, are in situations where leaving will be more difficult. And and so I don't know what to do with that. Like, are your are your grandkids better if you stay or you go? Are your great grandkids better if you stay or you go? And and I think that's an individual choice for every single person. But it seems to be that's the question you're pointing at because you're talking about your children. Like like if I leave, how do I do this? But the other side of the argument is if you stay, what traumas will be given to them? What kinds yeah. of unhealthy views about other human beings will be given to them? What kinds of limitations will be placed on those kids because of their gender or their race? And and yeah. so it's it's a mixed bag. And and I don't think it's as simple as saying you should stay or you should go. I think everyone's situation is unique. And and you and I are talking about a particular kinds of kind of system. And some of the people who listen to the Almost Awakened podcast never have been in that system. They've either not been in religion at all, or they've been in an entirely different religious system. And that looks completely different to them than it did to you and me. And even you and I's situation is completely different. And so what's the solution? What's the end? I, I don't know. I only know I that. Okay. Go ahead. No, no. I was gonna say I only know that as I look across the the trajectory of time, I see humans making progress, and I'm left to assume that we'll continue to do that. And we're all we're all assigned to do like, like I can only be human to the degree that I'm human. Like I can only show up as I am, and I hide parts of myself, and I show parts of myself. I, I think I think people are going to be messy and complex, and it's not 
cut and dry and there's no simple formula for hitting this out of the park and and getting it done right and mistakes are going to be made and i tr- i just my point being is i trust humans collectively to figure it out even if you and i are pointing to a problem that affects a certain percentage of humans and the difficulty it is to do a certain thing i think we're going to get there collectively if if as you point out if we just have patience yeah i think the interesting thing is that if i were to ask going back to your comment about Joe Rogan, kind of where we're finding uh, voices that are helpful. Um, If you ask the average person, you know, like, what do you like to eat and and what do you do for exercise? They may, you know, I I don't really like exercise, but I like to go on walks or I go to Taekwondo or whatever. And there's kind of this general understanding that physical health is good for you. And it kind of doesn't matter what you do, but you should probably be doing something. There's certain brain, you know, benefits you get and certainly longevity and things like that. And there's no drama around my friend who does yoga and my friend who does whatever, because we're all just kind of saying, you know, I, you know, there's this general understanding that, that physical health is good and whatever is your thing and working for you is, is great for you. And there's, there's no drama around it, right? But, but what's interesting is we can't usually... Uh, go up to just some stranger that we're meeting for the first time and say, what do you do for spirituality? You know, for, for some reason, we just don't ask that question. We don't. Um, so if someone goes on a hike once a week and they do it for just a sense of awe and connection and they're deeply filled by this, by this, you know, hiking, they don't really call it spirituality. And so I think what we have to do, we have to realize that spirituality, elements of spirituality are healthy for human flourishing. And that if you're, if you are using some act, you're weaving through religion and trying to kind of undo the more traumatic aspects and that's your spiritual life, then that's great. And then if you're coming out it from another angle and building those um, because you found a podcast that you like, you Joe Rogan and you go on walks, whatever, and you meditate and whatever your thing is. Um, I think we just need to become more comfortable individually and as a human race of saying, this is what I do for spirituality. And we don't yet because spirituality is still just kind of dripping with religious connotation. And so people will say, no, 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 I don't do that. I'm an atheist. And that's not entirely true, right? Everyone has some aspect of, of spiritual life unless you just do nothing and live by yourself and don't do anything. And you're, uh, I can't even imagine what a non-spiritual life looks like. And so I, I just think we have to become more comfortable with saying however you're getting there and getting there can either be coming at it from one end, more like the Phil Mecklemore end of, of weaving through religion to find those really beautiful gems and um, building a, a really rich internal practice or coming at it from another angle where you're not um, particularly religious, but you're building and finding things that are resonating, resonating with you on your own. Either way is it's a spirit, it's spirituality. And I think we have to claim it as spirituality because what happens is, is if you're not claiming spirituality as something you have to work on and you're just Mormon because you're essentially brain, brain, brain like, like you've never even thought about it, you just do it because that's what you do. Or you don't have any spirituality because you're completely nihilist, you just don't even want to care. There's a problem, right? Either side of that is a problem. So I just think that we have to continue to have conversations like this, where we're claiming that what we're doing is spirituality, and that we can ask our friends, what do you, if you're dating someone new for this time, what do you do for spirituality? And have that kind of 
got to calm down those conversations so that it's not just about uh, religion and all the trauma and triggers around religion. You have to start claiming spirituality again as an essential part of human life in order for us to move forward as we're kind of leaving the pews, right? We're just we're just leaving the pews um, all, all over the world. We're, we're being kind of disorganized. And so I just think that that's really helpful. Um, Hey, can, I ask, can I ask you a question? How do, how, do you defi- how do you define spirituality? Like, what's that word mean to you? Because I think it means a million things, and, and I want to narrow down what you define that as, and then I, I'd like to share what I define it as. And that way, as we move through the rest of the conversation, we've got a feel for what that word means to each of us, and the listeners can kind of use that as a backdrop. Sure. So I, I, I uh, define it as connection. So that would be connection to self. Right, so working with your shadows, time where you're where you're um, having to face yourself and have honest times with yourself. Uh, connection to the world and all other conscious creatures. It's very healthy um, to feel connection to something bigger than you. Even in something like AA, which is an entire, which isn't you know a religion. You know, the first step is like you've got to start. You've got to start feeling connected to something other than yourself. That's very healthy for you to. Um, you know, connection to family or, or friends or ancestry, connection to the meaning and purpose. So I would just say connection, connected to your life, the people in your life, to, to consciousness, however you define it, to something bigger than yourself. And that tends to have overwhelming positive mental effects. And when you're disconnected, um, when you're alone, when you have no reason to get up in the morning when you're so disconnected from the earth that you know the things you're doing the things you're eating you know it's just poisoning you in some way just because you're you're a human that's not meant to live like that uh you're disconnected from who you are you never look at yourself and connect people around you you're just trying to get out you know get whatever they have to offer you that was what I would call a not, uh, you know, a, a struggling spiritual life where you're just not connected to to life, you know, to life in general. So I just call it connection. What, what would you? Oh, so I, I love, I love that. Yeah, I, I love what you just said, and I, I agree. It was, it, and I wasn't part of my answer, but as you said all those things, I agree with you that for me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna adjust my answer. So first, I'm gonna say that you're pointing to a truth, which is as we are connected to the universe around us in all of its forms and facets, that that is spirituality. And and I found it interesting that your answer didn't involve God at all, and nor will mine. Um, I, I want to add that for me, spiritual is to be in awe. Every time I'm in awe of the world around me, of a conversation that's happening with a friend, of seeing something inside myself that I want to adjust or change or even just notice. Anytime I'm in awe, that feels spiritual to me. And, and I want to add that um, it's, it's joy in learning, but that joy also is based in that sense of awe. It's the joy of being present or paying attention to any given moment. Like here's a moment right here where you and I are talking and I'm enjoying the conversation. I'm enjoying reconnecting with you, even as a side thing from the conversation itself, like just to see Brittany Hartley again and to, to have seen her face this morning and to talk to you. There, there's something about being present in a moment and 
enjoying the moment that's right in front of you. Like we so often treat the present moment like it's the past. In other words, we've already moved on from this conversation. I'm already thinking about editing the the audio and you're thinking about what you have to get off and, and go do later here today and run some errands or go tackle this or take your kids somewhere. And yet here's this moment, this present moment right here. And the more we pay attention to the present and we feel a sense of awe around it, which I do, I think that's spiritual as well. And, and so I want to add kind of now a caveat to those two things, which is that all practices that have me on the path of progress and growth, that have me sitting with and wrestling with my unhealthiness or shadow, any practice that calls me to be present and aware and hence alive feels like a spiritual practice. Um, and they have zilch to do, as you pointed, as you kind of didn't even mention in your answer, they have zilch to do with whether God exists, whether he or she is doing anything. And void of God and his or her existence, I'm spiritual. Um, and so that would be my answer. Um, where we're talking about connection to something greater. I'm okay with sitting with people when they call that feeling, that feeling that we're both feeling right now where we're connected to someone else in conversation, um, present. And if someone wants to call that feeling God, I'm okay with that. You know, I've learned to be okay with that and to not have like an existential crisis of that God. And I'm also okay with atheists saying, you know what, I just call that conscious. You know, I was I was listening to a meditator who talked about how there's something about consciousness that wants to be awake and aware and up and and connect with other consciousness. And because language is just so tricky and we're all meeting language in different places. If someone wants to call that soul and someone wants to call that consciousness, you know, once you get to that place, that really healthy place, if you call it soul or consciousness, call it ultimate reality or God, I'm okay with any of those words. You know, I'm okay with however you meet that place because because it's a place that's almost beyond words where you're feeling awe, you know, you're feeling deeply connected, and you feel joy. And and so I've I've come. You know, five years ago or even 10 years ago, as I'm, I'm in faith crisis, I'm studying theology, I really wanted to figure out, you know, what's the right word? How do we explain this the right way? What's the right way to have build a theology around feeling of awe? And now I'm kind of in a deconstructive place where I, I care a lot less about what people call that place. I just want us to be there more. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I want to add to what you just said. I, I had a couple of conversations with Glenn Oslin from Infants on Thrones, and he recently wrote a book called Bathing with God. And he's been sharing these chapters of this book in in his podcast, which is on iTunes, and I recommend everybody listen to it, titled Bathing with God. And and he's not a believer in a bearded man in the sky. He's atheist by by the standard that religion would look at him and go, yeah, that's an atheist. But like you're pointing to, he still calls it God this thing. And, and I would like to point out what, he, what, he's, what I think he's pointing to, which is 13.2 billion years ago, if we buy into science, 13.2 billion years ago, something happened, some spark. And in that spark, the universe gets set into motion and it starts off small, but it's ever expanding. And at some point, enough dust and dirt and minerals and rocks and all that collect to form planet Earth. And on planet Earth, over the course of billions of years, there's this evolutionary process where out of out of nothing but a giant rock in space 
little by little comes these little breaths of life. And and now here we are, 13.2 billion years later, here we are, you and me sitting here in our in, in our locations, you're at uh, your ice cream shop, I'm sitting here in my home, and we're having this conversation. And as Eckhart Tolle said, like, you are the universe experiencing being a human for a little while. As you sit and understand, like, oh my goodness, I am part of this big rock. And here I am having this consciousness and you have your consciousness and here we are thinking thoughts and exchanging ideas and um, what a beautiful thing that is. And if we understand, if we define God and, and the most simplest explanation for God is that God is all present, he is uh, all powerful and he is all knowing. And if those are the attributes, and again, I'm always assigning this male pronoun um, because that's what we're trained to do. But whatever God is, he's not, he's not he or she, they're not gender. It's, it's just a thing. And again, I'm imposing kind of my own beliefs here, but if God is, if we say God is all powerful, all knowing and all present, then that energy, whatever that energy is that sparked 13.2 billion years ago and has, has led to this ever expanding universe. And here we are on this flying rock in space, traveling at whatever it is, a million miles an hour around this giant, this giant star. And, and all of these people and all these other life forms, giraffes and elephants and koala bears and whatever else, that energy that's produced all of it. And all of it is the universe experiencing itself as that thing for just this brief moment in time. And even each of those things are always changing. I'm not the same human being I was 10 years ago. Not even the same cells, not the same ideas, not the same perspectives, not the same physicality to me. That energy is all present. Look at it. It's everywhere. That energy is all powerful. Everything that's ever been done has been done by that energy. And that, and that, that energy is all knowing because anything that's known, it knows because it's us and we're it. And so soon as you accept that, even if there's no magical being out there, whatever happened 13.2 billion years ago and has now led to everything that is and ever was and will be, then it doesn't really take much of a leap to then call that God, does it? No, not at all. And, and the true miracle of it, and this is what you get when you get into really, really deep scientific conversations around consciousness, is because it becomes such a miracle and we don't understand consciousness very well. And the fact that things are relating and binding and, and coming together that we're able to pet a dog and feel happy and the dog's happy, the fact that I'm able to make some jumbles with my mouth and understand what I'm saying. I mean, it's so miraculous, even just on a pure scientific level, that to call that God, it, it's, not, it's not a huge deal to me. Now, if you said, do you believe that God is a white bearded man who has a plethora of wives sitting on a throne? Yes, I'm an atheist to that God. But I don't like calling myself an atheist specifically because when we get into those deep conversations around consciousness and the interrelated reality of consciousness and the mystery of that, it, it's really not a far leap to call something like that God. We're just this thing that's bigger than us that we're a part of that we don't fully understand. And I'm becoming more comfortable with that than I was. And I think you too, you know, right coming out of faith Christ. Yeah, and we, we came from God. And we will go back to God, right? Like, like, like we get to enjoy this brief moment. And even if you accept that there's no heaven or hell and there's, you know, I started at my birth and I, and my consciousness started at my birth and my consciousness ends with my death. There's still some sense of I'm part of the universe and I get to go back 
to that and become something else, even if that consciousness is lost. Um, There really is magic to it. There is. And some people say, you know, uh, is it so sad just to like, I I don't believe that I'm going to be conscious after death. I, I don't believe currently, I don't put any stock in that. And, you know, someone says, you know, is it is it just meaningless when you believe that? And once you fully understand that I'm forever connected to this web, and that how I treat my children, particularly ones that, you know, have come from trauma, um, where unconditional love can do amazing genetic things to them for their entire life. Once you realize how interconnected you are to the web of life, I have eternal life in that web. Every moment that I have with my children is eternally, for as long as humans are on the earth, significant. Even though I think I'm going to be worm food in 50 years, I do. And, and that shift has been very interesting for me. It's not something everybody understands. But, but uh, once you get there, life becomes magical again. And that's really the antidote to nihilism, you know. Nihilism, yeah. when nothing matters and you're not connected to anything, there really is. I can see why even in the Mark Hoffman documentary, I don't know if you caught this. I, I wouldn't say that Mark Hoffman did everything he did because he's a nihilist, but you definitely see that as he became atheist and as he began to see like, oh, this is just a system that I can benefit from, you begin to see that he, he didn't replace it with any kind of morality, right? And so you see in his actions with, with how he treated everyone that, you know, the interviewer asked, do you feel bad that these people died? And he said, well, if they die by me or die of a bus or die of old age, what does it matter? Nothing matters. You know what I mean? Right. Nothing matters. Right. And as he's delivering the bomb, he has that little sense of fear of what if there is a God? You know, he has that little cut of nudge of what if there is a God and I'm wrong. And so the antidote to that kind of life, which didn't end up good for anyone, is is this deep connection that we're talking about, connecting to self, connecting to to the universe, to others, to conscious creatures. And that's what gives you a just eternal significance each moment without you having to believe that you believe in the celestial kingdom or whatever it is that you used to believe about eternal life. That's the antidote. Yeah. When when Britt, when you arrived at the conclusion that your consciousness was going to die with your last breath, when you when you decided that was the case, immediately following that did you, and, and up to this present moment, do you find yourself living life more fully and in a deeper, more healthier way with that awareness? Or, do you, or, or were you doing that better when you thought that you were, might go to heaven or hell after this life? Hmm. So the one, the thing that's really better, the thing that's better is that you don't get to uh, put off anything till the next life. So, for example, I have a brother who um, is is active in the church, and he's very high on like the loyalty scale. Loyalty is very important. And so, when when I stopped attending, especially when I didn't see all my youngest two children, he hasn't spoken to me in years. We ha- we don't have a relationship. And when you're Mormon, and I know people who are like this, they kind of say, you know what, I'm. I'm going to have some of those conversations in the next life. And I'm going to deal with some of this, you know, in, in the next life when we have a chance to sit down and talk about something. And so for me, there's some things that are more sad, but it's also more meaningful. So the fact that I don't have a relationship with my brother right now is more painful to me now 
believing that I'm not going to be alive after this flood because the idea that religion is causing us to not have a relationship in the one life that we know that we have is so wasteful and devastating. It's so ridiculous. It's so painful. And I would say for him it's probably less painful because he believes that, you know, in the next life I'll learn my lesson and and Mormonism was right and he has faith. So I I do think that there's things that are more sad. You know, the the tragic death of children when you don't believe that they're in heaven running around in the flowers is is more devastating. And I think we saw this there was a recent talk by Joy Jones the general release society president where she talked about how she didn't mourn and she wasn't sad. I think I'm getting the story right that her son had died. Do you know what I'm talking about, Bill? Um I I don't, but I understand the gist of the idea. Yeah, it, it got a lot of comments on a on an exponent Facebook group where she didn't have to face the death of her son because she so, believed so strongly that, that he was in heaven. And, and as someone who uh, doesn't believe that, I have nothing more to offer her that's better than the hope that she currently has that is you know, allowing her to maybe get up in the morning a little bit. So I, I think that things are more meaningful and more joyful. And when things line up, people relate. And my friends and my family, those moments are more precious because to me, life is finite. But it also means that the tragedies are also more painful too. And so when you open to um, the joys and the sorrows of life, it was both more sorrowful, more sorrowful and also more joyful. And it was both. Okay. So let me ask it differently. Cause I don't, I don't think I'm asking a question of happier or sadder. I think, I think you're right. That's more messy and complex. And I think there's people on both sides who would swear that they've got that. My, my question is it, uh, on which side of life did you feel more alive? Sorry, say that again. On which side of life do you feel more alive? Oh, definitely on this side of life. Yeah. Right. Like, like you, I, I think you're much more prone on the first half of life, when you believe in dogma and you're living a tribalistic perspective, you're much more likely to treat the present like the past. And that when you begin to understand the fragility of life and that, and that there are good and bad things that are coming, no matter what you do, that you're going to suffer joy. You're going to have joy and you're going to suffer loss. You're going to have tragedy happen and you're going to have really big, beautiful things occur. And then you're going to have a lot of stuff in between. For me, it made me much more appreciative of each moment as it was in front of me, and and I've I've definitely felt more alive on this side of life. Now, I I would also argue I'm happier, but I grant that that's going to be different for everyone depending on their life circumstance. You leave the church, and maybe something great happens, or maybe you have some kind of illness or health condition that starts to set in from other things going on. Leaving religion doesn't necessarily mean your life's going to be good and happy. But I think when you once you realize the fragility of life and this this life is the only life you have, and it could end later today, or maybe it lasts another 40 years, it, it really gets me to be more alive in this moment. And and I think I think that's a value. I think it's a value to hear that and to see it and to sense it. Um, but I, I think that value comes also, the price that comes with it is that the you know needless suffering in the world is going to be a heavier burden you know if if i'm watching a documentary and it's about 
a kid that was- By the way, finish that, but but which is the opposite of nihilism, right? Like you learning the fragility of life has you sensing that you need to do your part to reduce- Absolutely. Unnecessary suffering in this world. Absolutely. And it gives you just a fever, like wanting to deal with unnecessary suffering and- people starving, you know, when you're in a religion that believes that, you know, if you're starving in Africa, you're going to die and you're going to hear the gospel in the next life and then everything be great. Um, it gives you, I mean, this is the reason why religion's called the opiate of the masses. It, it gives you a little bit of a drug that makes you not have to deal with human suffering, with death, with starvation and sickness you don't have to deal with it as much because you can just put that off into the next life and if i watch a documentary about you know a kid who's just been abused and beaten their whole life and then you know they die or the parents kill them or something tragic the weight of that on my heart is far far more painful than to be like i'll just weep for days you know that this was someone's conscious experience and it it, yeah. it changes it, mm. it deeply changes mm. so there is there are moments of, of greater sorrow, I think, but it's part of a more full human experience, a more full human life where every moment has value and wanting to uh, alleviate unnecessary suffering becomes more important to you than you know your status and your clothes and whatever you were caring about before. Yeah, and maybe, maybe to add too, that when you believe there's a heaven and a hell, then if you get hit by a bus later today and suffer for six minutes before you die, that, that so what, like six minutes later, now you're at the pearly gates and you're ready to rock and roll for all eternity. And, and once you realize that your consciousness comes to an end, death, death becomes really serious and death becomes something that occupies your awareness. For me, practically on a daily basis, I will spend a few minutes here and a few minutes there thinking about those last few minutes of life and it it doesn't distract me it doesn't it doesn't send me spiraling out of control or anything but in those moments there is also a sense of awe and a spirituality would be the connection i want to make a spirituality to wrestling with your own death and thinking about what that means and again i think it does point us to you know within a few minutes i get out of that little uh, that little loop that I'm in, that little that little hole that I'm in, and I return to being present with my wife, and now I'm enjoying her company and her being present with me to a much greater degree by being aware that this can all come to an end at any at any moment. Like every twinge in my chest means maybe a heart attack's 20 minutes away, and life is fragile, and so this moment should be enjoyed to its fullest extent. If you don't put off things, go do the things you want to do. Go, go tackle the things you want to tackle. Go create. Go, go produce. Go grow. Go learn. Go read. Go study. Go, go spend moments with your loved ones. Go on a hike and, and enjoy nature. Like enjoy every second. And I didn't have that perspective when I thought there was a heaven or a hell. Everything, every serious thought could be put off until the next day. And now it's like everything means something right here, right now. Yeah. That, I mean, death, people don't realize that death gives you such a focus on your life. I, I think about death also, and it's not in a morbid sense. It's just that what, what do I want that meaning? What do I want that to mean, you know, in, in my life? What do yeah. I want to have done? Mm. What, what do I want my children to feel about me? And how is that going to change how I react to this toddler who's screaming his head off in this moment because that that moment of 
of saying peace out, I, I want to mean something. You know, it, it gives you like focus. And this is why a lot of Buddhists meditate on death five times a day. It's a practice. You can actually get an app where five times a day on your phone, it will remind you that you're going to die. <laughs> and and uh, you can see that in how Mormons deal with death. You know, we put the temple clothing on. We give a plan of salvation. We tell everyone that they're in heaven. We, we list all their accomplishments. And uh, we, we do this kind of in community. And you can see how we're avoiding. We're avoiding a little bit that this person is gone. We're, we're avoiding some real connection even. Um, we just go and we have a, a lesson about the plan of salvation. And, and when we approach death in that way, we're missing something. Yeah. We're missing what, what focus that can bring to your life and what you want your life to have meant when you're at the end of it. Yeah, so. yeah. very much so. Um, I, I think we're, I, I don't know if you've got other ground you want to cover. We've been going just about two hours. I do want to share one little thing, which is, you know, if you're going to, you know, we started off the conversation talking about nihilism and dogmatism. And if people are going to leave dogmatism and stay away from nihilism, then they're going to need, they're going to need some morality and some boundaries to how they live their life. And I don't have the right to say, these are the rules. These are the boundaries. This is the morality, but I'd like to at least offer my two cents on how I set that up. Um, and it, do you mind please, if I share yeah, just a two-cent little blip? Yeah. And then I, and I'd like your two cents too, because I think this is the key. The key is to for humans who are succeeding at having left some degree of dogmatism and who now find a more full, happy life, like what is it that they're doing? And, and here's, my, here's my rules. I have two rules. Rule number one, and excuse my language, but don't be a dick. Um, and we say that in our house and we say, and our friends say that. And the, and, and I think it's all, it's all said right there in that one sentence. Don't be a dick. Don't treat people. Don't be malicious. Don't, don't let your trauma and unhealthiness um, cause you to lash out at somebody. Don't shame people. So again, that, that sentence of just essentially don't be a jerk. Don't, don't be an ass to people. Number two, allow people the space to be themselves and to be as vulnerable as they want to be and to help them feel safe exposing themselves without you or me imposing feelings of shame on them. Encourage people to give you the space to be your true self without feeling shame. And rule number one trumps rule number two. So if someone is acting unhealthy and being malicious or causing harm or trauma, even if unknowingly, we get to speak up and we get to impose rule number one, even if that prevents ourself or others from having the space to be their true self. In other words, if being your true self causes you to inflict harm on someone else, to be malicious, to lash out, to be irresponsible, then unfortunately you don't get to be your true self. And we can see this in the world. You know, we can't, we can't justify everything. We can't go like, look, you've got, you've got feelings inside your brain to do this to kids or to do this to animals or to do this to out in the world and, and take advantage of others. You can't be Mark Hoffman just because you want to be your true self and show up. You don't get to, you don't get to in, inflict trauma or pain or hurt on someone else unnecessarily. Um, so rule number one is the most important rule. You don't get to be a dick. And, and rule number two, outside of you maliciously hurting somebody else, you should have the full right to show up the way you want. If you want to cross-dress, if you feel like you're a different gender, if you, if you have sexual attraction towards this uh, or that, uh, you should be allowed in every way possible to show up as your true self 
so long as you are not hurting and causing suffering to someone else unnecessarily. Now, you have to parse some of this out. It does get messy in the sense that sometimes showing up as my true self will embarrass my mother or my father. Sometimes showing up as my true self will cause um, shame in someone else, even though they're not being directly impacted. And, and that's just too bad. Each of us have got to figure out how we get right with our own feelings, whatever those feelings are, as somebody we care about around us is showing up as themselves. And so in all of that, that's how I navigate life. I work my ass off not to cause any unnecessary suffering on anyone around me. And I want to make space for myself and for everyone around me to show up as their true self. And I want to make it safe that they can do that. Um, and, and those are the two rules that I live by. And I think they work. I, I feel like I have integrity. I feel like I'm trustworthy. I feel like people uh, are vulnerable around me. I feel like people gravitate uh, towards progress and towards uh, joy and happiness when they're in those kinds of spaces. And so I find that those two rules work really well um, in the world that I live in. Well, I think uh, those are beautiful rules to work by. I think I'm, I'm going to call out two things that have been really um, a foundation for my spirituality. And one is a daily practice. And by daily, I mean, I try to do it every day. And, you know, it's, um, but I think it's really important to have something in your life where you're continually coming home to yourself or looking yourself in the mirror or checking in with yourself. And when I started kind of doing just a nightly practice um, where, you know, I have, I have certain breathing things that I do, I have certain questions that I ask myself, and I just allow my subconscious or God or whatever kind of, I just allow some quiet to be able to um, see what comes into my mind. May all beings be well, may all be happy, peace. Um, having something continually in my life where I don't get very far from myself because of having to check myself has been really the spiritual foundation and rock of, of my life and really enriched my life. Um, and what's great about it is in Mormonism, you have all these rituals that are supposed to kind of remind you of things, but as you get used to them, you know, they be, sometimes they become meaningless or they become checklists. So to have something where you're actually really checking yourself and doing some internal work, uh, sending love to the world, sending healing out. You just cut out. I don't, I don't hear you at the moment that zone by by breathing and running outside and that's his that's his sacred place that's his temple and so we support each other even though we're doing different things together and then i think another rule that i live you know i'm just gonna leave it at that i, I think developing kind of a daily or weekly um thing that really kind of just brings you to the surface again brings you to life so that you can lead with being and lead with love um is the thing that that's really driving my spiritual. I love that. I because that's part of what I do too. I I love to hear you say like every day I try to sit with myself in quiet spaces and try to figure out what I can do better to have a more positive impact with myself, with those around me, and with the world at large. And and you can see the people who are doing the inner work 
There's something cool happening there. And I think all of these voices that we point to, Sam Harris, Eckhart Tolle, Richard Rohr, which you mentioned earlier, every one of these wisdom guys, every one of these wisdom teachers, these folks seem to be having those kinds of practices. You pointed to you having them. I certainly have them in my life too. There's a big difference in the folks who are sitting with themselves and trying to make the world a better place and trying to make themselves a better place. Um, that I think leads to incredible things happening over the course of a lifetime. And not just with us, but again, if we just wait it out, if we wait another 10,000 years and see what those people who do that, what impact they have on the world over the next 100 years or 5,000 years, I, I don't even think we can begin to fathom what kind of world this is in another. Like, look, where, we, where were we 300 years ago? And it's a night and day difference from where we are now. And we already know that technology, because it builds off a prior uh, creation, is exponentially moving forward. That where we are in another 300 years is unfathomable. You couldn't have fathomed it 300 years ago, and you can't fathom what it would look like 300 years from now. And, and so great things are going to happen because folks like you and me and all these other individuals that are out there that are thinking about how they show up in the world and they're taking that seriously are going to have significant impact. And I think that collective impact they're having is also exponentially growing. That is something sad though. I've told people before, I don't, I don't really mind the idea that I'm going to die, but there's sometimes that it makes me sad that, you know, we've been, we know so much about something like Mormonism, Mormon story that, you know, I'll be honest, it's a little sad that I don't get to see how the story ends. I want to know how Mormonism ends. You know, how, how does the story end? But yeah. we just have our own part in it. Yeah. And ever like, again, we get to pass on some of our stories. We get to pass on some of our knowledge. We get to pass on some of our excitement for concepts or ideas. And hopefully other people grab those and run with them in their own way. But the, the individual specific view of of whether it's information I have stored in my brain, whether it's the experiences that I've had, whether it's my excitement for certain concepts and how important I think they are to, to human development. To some degree, the moment I die, that specific individual perspective, consciousness, memory, knowledge base, uh, awareness of application, it, it all to some degree just goes. And I wish there was a way that we, even if we died, and our consciousness ended, if we could just store all of that in a database and allow future generations to benefit from it, we can do it to some extent, right? Here we are having a conversation for others to listen to, and there's going to be moments where others have light bulb moments as they're listening to it. And yet, to some degree, when you die and I die, something is lost as well. Well, to the, to the alien historians who are listening to this 20,000 years from now, yeah. this is us, Bill and Britt, in the right now. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else you want to ask or go into before we kind of wrap up? Uh, I think we ended, I, I think this is a good spot to end. I think we explored some really beautiful, uh, I think the thought that I just like to put out there to this podcast community to mull over is just that whatever nuanced religion or piecemeal spirituality that you're at from wherever you are on this pendulum of order and chaos, nihilism, dogmatism, um, just that inner question of just how can you make it better? How can you make it work for you more? How can you, um, you know, if I talk to people all the time who say things like, I really, you know, I've left the church, but I really miss music. 
I really miss um, having a gratitude practice. I really miss, there are things that people miss or there's things that people crave. There's something in your, usually if you give yourself space for your subconscious, there's something that you're kind of hungry for. You know, maybe you miss um, teaching and you, you want an opportunity to serve things that maybe you used to have when you were in a religious community. Maybe you miss community. I remember two years ago, um, I was so desperate in needing a, a community that I created with another couple here, a, a post-Mormon uh, or a Mormon spectrum group in Boise. And now we're, we're best friends and we're exploring all kinds of spiritual avenues. But that came because I deeply sensed that I needed key in my life. And I looked around and I said, well, then I've, I've got to be more intentional in trying to create it. And now it's a flourishing part of my life. And so just that, that quiet time where you just kind of ask yourself, what, what are you hungry for? What are you missing? Um, what's something in your life that you think would help you flourish more that's not there and then kind of follow those things um, can just really give you some incredible benefits of, of joy in your life as little, little, little inner whispers of, of the things you're hungry for. Mm, I love it. That's a beautiful place to, to kind of wrap up. I, I love the thought and I, and I would also just note concluding that if like Brit and like me, you you are bothered by unnecessary suffering in the world, then then it, you're not nihilistic. It's not a matter of nothing matters and there is no meaning in anything. If you decide that unnecessary suffering is hurts and it's sad and it should be reduced, then then you can build your morality off of that and you're anything but nihilistic simply by starting with that ground. Um, and I, th- I hope that people, as they heard this conversation, they I'll, I'll share the resources that we shared, the books and podcasts and things that we talked about. Um, I think those are valuable. I hope people just go off today after hearing this and just kind of wrestle with some of the things that were talked about. And I think these conversations are crucial to big things happening over the course of time, even if they happen slowly. And uh, I think this conversation's plays a little tiny part in all of that. And so thank you, Brittany, for, uh, again, spending another episode, kind of having a conversation with me about these things. And um, I just think the world of you and appreciate uh, your contribution today in this conversation. Thanks, Phil. And I just, I just want to add one more thing that I think it's so important um, that when you stop you know, doing something like paying tithing, that we're realizing that the future of this work, the kind of work that we're talking about where where we're filling in spiritual spaces. Um, it, it does take money and effort to do those things. And I think what we need to do, one part of the answer that we've kind of been about is that people deserve to be paid for the work that they do, the good work that they do. So if you don't give your money to Deseret Book anymore, but you limit, but you listen to Thomas McConkie's podcast, he deserves to be paid for that. You know, if Bill Real was an important voice of your deconstruction, he deserves to be paid for that as much as your MTC teachers deserve to be paid. And I think we're realizing, especially after our last election cycle, you know, the dangers of not paying for quality news instead of doing, you know, and just doing free clickbait and the dangers of, you know, not paying people for the good work that they do in the world um, is limiting our ability to move kind of these huge really rich religious institutions into the secular world. So I just want to challenge people that um, the work 
the books, podcasts, the voices that you appreciate in the world deserve your tithing money as much as, as before, as much as you were in Mormon. And, um, you know, if the church wasn't giving enough to the poor for you, donate to Encircle. Encircle is coming to Boise. We want to do some fundraising for it. It's very important. Um, so I just so appreciate the work that you do, Bill, and I just want to challenge everyone that if you're listening and Bill's been an important part of your journey, to, to donate to Almost Awaken, to donate to Confessions Podcast, because it is part of the solution as we're moving from um, you know, religion to more secular spaces that we need to also be able to support those people who are doing that work. And I just can't thank you enough for, for all the work that you do, um, not for the money, but because you genuinely care about people. Yeah, well, thank you. All that you've done. Yeah, thank you. I didn't put you up to that. Thank you so much for, no, for saying that. Just for me. Yeah, no. So folks, I'll just, I'll say it then just go to almostawaken.org. And if, if, if Brittany nudged you to want to do something, you can just click the donate button there. And again, a couple bucks a month makes a huge difference because it's when a thousand people add a couple bucks a month, um, it makes, it makes it possible to keep doing this for years and years into the future. So thank you, Britt. Thank you for your time. I'll let you get back to your family. Great conversation as always. Anytime, anytime you're like, Hey, I think this would make a good conversation. Don't hesitate to reach out and uh, we'll record it and put it up. All right, Bill. Thanks so much. Have a great Sunday. Yeah. Take it easy. Bye-bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.